0: Thank you, and welcome to Writer's Reason. Today we'll be taking a look at Brandon Sanderson's book, Yumi and the Nightmare Painter, and possible tips for strengthening relationships in your books. I'm your host, Brick Phelps. Okay, guys, I've got to tell you, I'm excited for this one. Now, I know this book along with the other secret books Brandon Sanderson wrote, have come under criticism. Some people don't like them, others love them, but that's the way with nearly every book, especially the best ones. I will unashamedly say I loved this book. It's probably one of my favorites. But some people may chalk that up to my particular tastes in books, and by particular taste, it may mean a possible lack of one. I tend to like a lot of books. But some I don't. Take Dune, for example, or Charles Dickens' Wheel of Time. Each one is very different from each other, but all of them have been highly recommended by friends and family, yet I didn't like them. Some I probably didn't give enough of a chance, and some I plan to try again, but all of them have bookmarks only part of the way through where I slipped away. But that doesn't make any of them bad. In fact, each of those is among some of the best known and well loved stories and authors. To me, it's not so much the author at fault here as it is the reader. Sometimes we just don't get it. Sometimes we aren't in the mood. And sometimes we're too distracted when our favorite author bombshells four secret books. So my point is that this review of mine is a positive one, but yours might not be. And that's awesome. Let me just explain some of my favorite pieces, and perhaps dig into some of the things that I've heard that Brandon Sanderson may have incorporated... And hopefully we can both learn something. In the Afterword, Brandon said that this book was a gift to his wife. Partly at least because she was always encouraging him to put more romance into his stories. This is evident as the romance, for the first time perhaps, takes the front row seat. That isn't to say that there also isn't the traditional unexpected twists and turns, or the fantastic setting and the mysterious magic system that usually make up a Sanderson story, it's just that now they are all heavily influenced, or, well, in most cases, they influence the romance plot. Still, though, I don't know if I'd call this a romance book. While that is what happens, the main conflict concerns the mysteries surrounding the world, the magic, and threats that come because of them. The romance is still technically a subplot, albeit a large one. I think that's something I really liked. It might seem weird, but I loved this format for the story. The dynamic between Painter and Yumi, the two protagonists, was very enjoyable for me. It created tension and conflict without making one of them a dark and mysterious bully, like the trope Edward falls into. Yeah, I kind of really hate that. This was a fresh, new relationship built on shared experiences. And then, of course, you have the other staples of a classic Sanderson novel. While still in the spoiler-free section of this episode, I don't want to dive into all the details, but it's safe to say that Yumi is a girl from one world, and Painter is in a completely different one. They connect through a mysterious happening that is tied to the worlds and their magic. This bond, which was created by the spirits, is both the conflict of the relationship and its savior. Without giving too much away, Yumi and Painter have to use their strange circumstances to save the spirits and save Painter's world from its own threats, all while having to live each other's lives, swapping back and forth. They have to discover a magic that they don't understand that leads perfectly into the large reveals and twists at the end. Before we leave the spoiler-free zone, I'd like to say again that I loved this book, but I also get that others might not. For me, it was the perfect blend of romance and fantasy. However, I think that the enormous hype of these books might be something of a detriment to some readers. Going into this book, you might expect perfection, maybe more so based on glowing reviews like mine. But be aware that this is still a story made by one person playing many parts. And there were some aspects that were a little off and others I wonder why he put them in there in the first place. Just know that this book isn't perfection, but that doesn't subtract from the experience for me. Okay, now I'm going to move forward into the second section of this episode, a small synopsis of the story. This won't be near as detailed as what I did for Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, because that's not what I want to focus on. Harry Potter was known for its near perfect plot structure, or its adherence to the traditional plot structure, which could be one reason for its success, so that's why I went so deep into that for Harry Potter. This book, however, shown in different ways, which we'll be able to get to in the third section. This will be an overview of the basic story at play, and hopefully I can do it justice, but I hesitate to say anything because I don't want you to hear the story from me. Brandon Sanderson did a much better job than I can do. For some stories, I get if maybe you just want to hear a synopsis rather than having to read through the story yourself, but for this one, it is such a good book that please just do yourself a service and read the real deal before you let me spoil all the twists and surprises. And without further ado, here goes spoiling all the twists and surprises. Within the story structure I like to use, which is the 15-beat Save the Cat story structure, there is a shorthand version. The main skeleton of the skeleton, if you will. Instead of the whole 15 beats plus sub-beats, there are seven main ones that allow you to block in the story with the biggest beats. This includes the setup, the catalyst, break into two, the midpoint, the all is lost, the break into three, and the finale. So basically, we start it all off getting to know our characters in the setup, then the catalyst happens that kicks them into the real part of the story, their decision makes up the third beat, break into two. Their decision as in what they're going to do. The midpoint is when it kind of gets a little twisty or new information is given. Uh, The all is lost is when everything seems to be going wrong. The break into three is how the character responds to everything going wrong. And the finale is how the character overcomes the obstacle in the end. So, here is what I saw in Yumi and the Nightmare Painter. Plot point one, the setup. The setup is where we get to meet our protagonists, Yumi and Painter. Because this book flip-flops between their two viewpoints, we actually only get two chapters each before the catalyst comes in. It's interesting to note that Brandon Sanderson is a master of weaving multiple storylines together. Yumi and the Nightmare Painter isn't just one story, it's actually three. It's Yumi and her story... Painter and his story, and also it's their story, all rolled into one in a perfect blend. In the opening scenes, we see Painter, a loner who is trying to convince himself he prefers it this way. He's kind of the guy who would voice over his own life. He's dramatic, he's brooding. He might say to himself In a world where nightmares gain substance, one man stands to deny the darkness. A lone warrior, a solitary soldier, the Nightmare Painter. You kind of get the picture. In reality, we quickly get the sense that Painter has made mistakes that have lost him his friends and his own self-respect. This persona he's built of this lone warrior facing the darkness is just a coping mechanism. Really, there are dozens, if not hundreds, of Nightmare Painters that stand beside him. They perform a normal function in their society, not unlike teachers do in ours. And then we see Yumi, a loner, but in a different way. She is a world away. Instead of a miasma of darkness, like what we get from Painter's World, where shadows stalk in this misty blackness that's just outside the city, and this kind of black... Unknown fog covers the sky at all times. They actually don't even see the sun. But instead of all of that, her world is completely different. It's a stony planet of heat and geysers and a burning red sun. She also lives in a pre-modern world where painter lives in a kind of well, not even kind of. It's a it's a modern world. Skyscrapers and and trains, noodle shops, apartment buildings. Um Yumi lives in a society locked in rituals. And for her, it's even worse than just the normal rituals because she's what they call a yokihijo. A yokohijo is the girl who can command the spirits. She is basically the people's way of making use of the spirits that are part of her setting. So that means that she lives her life in complete service, never taking a day for herself, always bound by protocol and more rituals than like, monks. But despite her own self-rebukes, she wants to take a holiday. She feels guilty about it, but she wants a day where she can just feel normal. But this eats her alive. And that's really all we get. We see the characters in their own worlds, which are more different than similar, and we get a sense of their wants, their needs, and their circumstances, all in two chapters each. Then the catalyst comes. This is perfect because Catalysts are what really set the story in motion, but Brandon didn't give Yumi and Painter the same story. He let each one have their own narrative, and they also have one as a combined unit, so in the next two chapters, we get a triple catalyst. For Painter, it comes when he is heading home after a particularly lonely shift and happens to spot signs of a nightmare in someone else's area. He's off duty. He's had a bad day, and someone else is surely going to find this nightmare. So it doesn't matter, really. Plus, unless the situation has gotten dire, nightmares aren't even dangerous. They just are in the process of getting stronger, and nightmare painters stand in the way of them eventually becoming dangerous. So really, he can just go home if he wants. But deep down, Painter is a good guy. So he follows it and discovers something horrible. Now, Painter is of the profession of the Nightmare Painters, like I said. His real name is Nicaro, but he goes by painter to all who aren't painters themselves. In Nicaro's world, there is no sun, the only light being artificial. There is only the shroud, which is a dark black mist that blankets anywhere people haven't established these artificial lights called Heon Lines. Are like fantasy versions of power lines. But from that darkness crawls nightmares, actual nightmares creatures given form by the fear of people. Painters prowl at all hours searching for signs of these nightmares in order to neutralize them. That is where painting comes in, because nightmares are shaped by people's perceptions, such as fear-filled dreams. They can also be forced into shapes by painters who will them to be so. Seeing these telltale signs, Painter could have just left the nightmare to another Painter, whose area this was, but instead decided to do the right thing and track it down. Off shift and unpaid. But when he catches sight of it, it turns out to be more than just a simple non-lethal nightmare without substance enough to hurt anyone. This one has been feeding long enough to become mostly stable. A threat more dangerous than a serial killer. After chasing it off, which is only a temporary solution, he inexplicably is so exhausted he can only stumble home and collapse on the ground. Meanwhile, over on Yumi's world, she goes through her 80-some-odd rituals to start her usual day before inviting the spirits with a dazzling performance of rock stacking. In her world, the spirits can be asked to become useful things like farm equipment or lights, but they have to first be attracted by a yokohijo who stacks rocks in a very elaborate way. The typical summoning may produce 10 or so spirits on a good run, but on this particular day, Yumi gives everything, wanting to perhaps bargain for a day off with a good performance, and she manages to summon 37, a record number. But that isn't her catalyst. That night... While she is dealing with the exhaustion of her performance, a spirit that she can't see, which is unlike the others, begs her help, saying that the spirits are trapped in pain. When Yumi agrees to help, everything goes black. When she wakes up, Painter is there in her world and apparently wearing her body. Both these stories have their own catalyst. Painter seeing the dangerous nightmare and Yumi being contacted by the spirits for help. But the third story, their story, has its own catalyst. And that's when Painter and Yumi began swapping bodies. When Painter wakes up in Yumi's world, he can see Yumi and she can see him as him. But no one else there sees Yumi and everyone sees Painter as Yumi. But their days are shortened by unnatural exhaustion. And when they sleep, Yumi wakes up on Painter's World. This time, Painter is the ghost, and Yumi is the physical one. But unexpectedly, when Yumi talks to someone, it turns out they see her as her, which is explained later. This difficult dynamic is the basis for their strained relationship that slowly develops out of uncomfortable and stressful shared experiences. They can't even move more than ten feet apart. And that makes things like showering or bathing, which is a very important ritual on Yumi's planet, quite awkward. Then we come to the break into two. This beat comes after a debate period where each is trying to accept what is happening. When they finally realize they must be trapped in these circumstances by the spirits of Yumi's world, they decide to try to figure it all out. These decisions are what Make up the break into two. It's their initial plan. For the spirits, they aren't sure what they're supposed to do, but they begin experimenting, trying to contact the spirits again to ask their direction. In Painter's World, they try to warn others of the existence of the half stable nightmare, and all the while their relationship begins to develop around their needed courses of action. Contacting a spirit would be easy for Yumi for painter who has never stacked rocks and when warning the foreman of the nightmare doesn't end well it's up to yumi instead of painter to prepare somehow to find it this dynamic of teaching each other what it's like to live their life breeds conflict and eventual closeness for the two protagonists then we get to the midpoint and at the midpoint things get all shook up which is expected but in the same way you might expect it in christmas presents You still don't know what's inside until you get there. For Painter's story, we see Yumi being adopted into his old friend group, the same one that abandoned him, or so he says. He feels envious and ashamed all the same time, and we can see that this is obviously tied to the mistakes he's made in the past. Back in Yumi's world, Painter takes a roundabout way of trying to secure more freedoms for Yumi amid the stranglehold of her former life. They stumble into lies that knock Yumi down as she learns she technically didn't have to push herself so hard to please the spirits that not all of those rituals were needed and that taking a day off would have been okay. But this same stumbling also prompts the kingdom Yumi is a part of to send a new machine that can stack rocks It threatens Yumi's way of life and prompts her to question everything about her lifestyle. Both of these turning points also pushes the relationship along as each protagonist takes hold of the life they now are a part of and puts their own mark on it. It's frustrating and difficult for both of them. Yumi would prefer painter, obey every code of conduct perfectly, and didn't ask questions, And Painter wants Yumi to avoid his old friends and accept that they're just unkind instead of perhaps stumbling on the truth and making him open his eyes to reality. This uncomfortable growth period sets us up for our next beat. The all is lost. At this point, all three stories, the nightmares, the spirits, and the relationship are all one interconnected story. The plot points blend, and the story owners are all the same, Yumi and Painter. Here are some of the things that make up this low point of the book. It's a bit of a longer process, and a lot of these things come at different times, but this kind of shows how some of the best, all is lost, are more of a process rather than one singular event. It's kind of like one event after another. When Yumi spends more time with Painter's friends, she winds up, learning the truth, that he lied to them, all of them. He had promised them a position in this elite core of the painter's profession, one that they could be in simply by being friends with him. Painter, or rather in this group, niccaro had believed he was going to get accepted based on his skill. When he wasn't, he couldn't find it in him to let them down. So, what he did was he actually lied to them, telling them he had gotten in, and instead of breaking the news to them, he hid it from them for a year, keeping their hopes up, not wanting to hurt them more, but eventually doing just that. But of course, they found out. This realization might not technically be part of the All is Lost, but it's a low moment just like before like the dying embers just before the fire gets doused. Right after this, we get the true all is lost, and the big reveal, that Yumi is actually a nightmare. As crazy as it sounds, and though it doesn't really make sense at first, that's what was really going on. You see, they couldn't really figure out what was happening between the two of them. They were wondering, were they on different planets? Were they from different worlds? Were they... Time traveling, they didn't know where each other was in comparison to themselves. They had tried and tested a lot of these questions, but they had never expected this one. The explanation is quite crazy, and it has to be delivered to us through Hoyd, the narrator. What really happened was this. Before painters' people were... This modern people. They were actually a nomadic group, not technically part of this old kingdom. But the people of the old kingdom were actually Yumi's people. They had Yokohijo and the spirits and everything, but they had built machines, like the ones that had come to Yumi's village, in an attempt to supplement the supply of useful tools that the spirits could become. This had all led to the grand creation of the machine, the big one. It was a machine designed to replace all other machines and Yokihijo. In technical terms of the Cosmere, it was an awakened machine, but the instructions given, given to it were not nuanced enough, and it attacked and jeopardized the lives of 90% of the population. Long story short, Yumi and her people had their souls consumed by the machine. After using them as a power source, it launched the byproduct of these spent souls into the air, and that was what created the shroud, that black mist that covered the whole planet. This obliterated everyone caught by the machine, except for those who were invested, and a handful of other people who were nomadic people on the outskirts of civilization, these nomadic types were the ones who went on to eventually become painter's people. The Yogihijo were invested, and by sheer power of their status they pulled themselves from the miasma of the shroud. They recreated themselves out of the material of the shroud by the power of their invested souls. So the awakened machine dealt with them, and it dealt with them by trapping them within their own minds it would make them think they were still alive, and that the festival where the machine was initially turned on had not happened yet. Then it would wipe away that one memory, the memory of that day. So Yumi had been living the same day over and over again. Everything around her, her servants, and even the town, was all just a construct of the machine and its manipulation over the shroud. Even the spirits that she summoned every day were just an illusion. And it would have worked too if it wasn't for that meddling kid. Despite being made of the shroud, Yumi was in control of herself by virtue of her invested soul and had been practicing her art of stacking rocks for spirit summoning for thousands of years. The spirits she drew were not really spirits at all, but rather more just part of the illusion, the real spirits had all been trapped by the machine in Torio City. But on that fateful day, Yumi had done more than just summon 37 spirits. She had been strong enough to pull one of the real ones away from the influence of the machine. That's why it had been invisible. That's why it had begged for help. And that's why it had formed a connection between Yumi and Painter. It had known that someone would need to figure out what was going on and destroy the machine. The spirit had actually followed Painter and watched as he heroically followed the nightmare instead of going home. It pegged him as brave and so had chosen him. That's why Painter had been so inexplicably tired right after facing down the nightmare, because the bond was now sapping his strength. Kind of crazy, right? That was what they figured out in the section of the book that is opened by the All is Lost, called the Dark Knight of the Soul. But after the revelations, the characters still have to find out what to do and drum up the courage to do it. That leads us to the break into three, the part of the book where Painter comes out and does the right things for a change. Something interesting about this is that the rest of the book is basically back to separate storylines. The connection ended when Yumi's true state was revealed. The nightmare they've been chasing is now fully stable and coming with a host of others. Years ago there was another city that this happened to. A host of stable nightmares had attacked, decimating it and leaving few survivors. Now that same apocalypse level fight was coming to Painter's home. His only hope is the Dream Watch, the elite painters trained to deal with stable nightmares and dangerous ones. Earlier, one of Nikado's friends, who was also a painter, spotted the stable nightmare, so luckily the Watch was already there. But when Nikaro goes running to them with the news of the horde that is coming, he finds the worst case of don't meet your heroes. He has longed to be part of the Watch his whole life. In fact, that was why he had lost his friends, because he thought he was talented enough to join, and had not wanted to disappoint them when he had failed. When Nicaro enters the house where the Dream Watch is staying, he finds more of a frat house than an elite team. His pleas fall on deaf ears, and he learns that getting into the Dream Watch was never about skill. It was always about who you knew or who you were related to—sons and daughters of politicians, businessmen, and the like. They—they they were the ones filling the room, not skilled painters. Now, it's just painter, and any friends he can convince against the po- apocalyptic horde on their way. Because a second obstacle to saving his home city is his own reputation. No one wants to believe the boy who cried wolf. They think he's just after attention. But because of the defense Yumi gave to his friends, they are willing to at least humor him. It all rides on this. His fellow painters put their own reputations on the line to gather other Painters and wait at the specified location. And they wait. And they wait. If the nightmares don't come, it will all be over for Painter's chance with his friends again. Meanwhile, Yumi wakes up in her own body, in her own world, living the same day over again. She doesn't remember Painter. The machine erased that. But because it was such a large thing to forget... She senses something is wrong. Then, through a message left by Painter, she breaks through the machine's influence and remembers everything. She rushes, looking for the machine so she can destroy it. You see, at this point, she still thinks the machine the spirits want her to destroy is the small one brought to the village. But she quickly learns that she is wrong. The true machine is in Torio. The big capital city. So she leaves. Quick as she can, she fights through nightmares and uses smart tactics to get to Torio. She sees the large awakened machine stacking hundreds of stones at once with thousands of spirits surrounding it. Then, knowing there is no other alternative because she can't get to the machine because of its protections, she begins stacking rocks. If she can stack better than the machine with a thousand arms, she can pull spirits away from the machine. If she can pull all the spirits away from the machine, they won't have anything to power it. If the machine shuts down, the shroud disappears. And if the shroud disappears, so does Yumi. Over with Painter, the nightmares come. A hundred of them pour out of the shroud and find a ring of thirty painters in a circle waiting for them. It's the battle of a lifetime, and Nikaro is at its head. But as the nightmares are slowly changed, something horrible happens. The nightmares start changing back. Usually, when they are turned into something harmless, they disappear. But these ones are just changing back into nightmares until Painter realizes what's happening. He sees something he recognizes in one of them. They are the villagers from Yumi's village. With this knowledge, he begins to paint. He paints the people he saw in the village, and this time, they stay changed. As the battle is won, everyone cheers, except Painter. The remnants of the bond he shared with Yumi lets him know something is wrong. And it's not that Yumi is failing. It's actually the opposite. She is succeeding. With stacks of stone in a dizzying array, she has outstacked the machine built specifically for this job. And as the machine fades, so does Yumi. And it crushes Painter. Her final words are that sometimes things just have to end this way. Like a TV show Yumi and Painter watched in his world, it ended sad, which disappointed her, but Painter had said that some things just had to end that way. And then the book ends. I know, right? It's so horrible. I was devastated. I had something to do right after I finished that, so I didn't read the epilogue. So I stood in literal sadness for most of the day before coming back to finish the last couple pages. Stupid Brandon. The epilogue was actually just the last chapter. We know this because there was a second epilogue and because the first epilogue took place right after the words of the ending. Yumi had always lived her life knowing she was devoting it completely to the service of others. Nothing for herself. But her time in Painter's world showed her that she wanted things. She wanted to live a little for herself. And that that was okay. As she is fading, she says as much to Painter, who begs her to stay. She realizes it that she wants it as much as he does and through sheer force of her invested, perfect soul, she pulls herself from the fading shroud to embrace painter. And they go on to live happily ever after. The end for real this time. Phew. Now, moving on, I want the last section of this podcast to dive into some of my favorite aspects of the book and how they might be implemented into another story. For me, this relationship felt full of tension, back and forth, a good kind of conflict, and I was rooting the whole time, yet desperately wondering how it was all going to work out. How were Painter and Yumi going to end up together if they were on different worlds? There was a Heon bus to the star that seemed like it was Brandon's answer specifically to this question, but when they arrived, it wasn't the right planet at all. This tension built along with my desire for them to be together, right up until the meanest ending I have ever read. With the in-world TV drama Seasons of Regret to play as foreshadowing, Sanderson took her expectations of a happy united ending and chopped them all up, spat on them, and served it cold. I was devastated. I get that some stories end sad, but I didn't want it to be this one. But... You can see how he knew what we were expecting, and he played that against us to pull at our emotions. Then there was that last chapter labeled the epilogue. And, like I said, to add to the heart crushing despair, I didn't read on from the last chapter to the epilogue. I waited a good while, soaking it all in, feeling hurt. So you can imagine my joy when I finally read the true ending, the happy ending. I love how Brandon knew what I was thinking. He knew my expectations and then used those against me. He knew we would assume that the two very different places could never be the same, just affected in different ways by the Shroud. I think he does this so well because he really is the master of controlling his promises. He is always taught his method as understanding what promises you're making to the readers, making progress along those promises and delivering a soul-pounding payoff for it. Sometimes breaking those promises in just the right way. I know it's a different story, and I'm going back to Harry Potter. But we just watched the last movies of this series. And it's in the big battle for Hogwarts at the end. And there's a lot to say that's really good for that fight scene. But it's soul-crushing to watch so many of your favorite characters die. Like Lupin. And Fred. And all of these people, even down to like one of the Patil sisters and Lavender. All of these characters that you've known throughout the series, it's soul crushing to watch them die. And I think that J.K. Rowling knew what she was doing with these characters. She's often said that she planned it from the back to the front of the series. Um, And I think that she wanted this to be hard. I think she planned for us to get to know some of these characters, even the side characters like Lavender Brown and the Patil sisters, just to see us find real stakes in this battle. I think it's that control of promises that really makes some of the best stories. There are tons of these promises in Sanderson's book. Some are large, making up the majority of the plot, and some are small. In his BYU lectures, Sanderson taught that understanding what promises you are making to the reader is a very necessary part of writing. In this book, when Painter first comes across the nearly stable nightmare, we automatically assume this will play a large part in the rest of the book. It would be weird if it didn't go much beyond that one scene. When Yumi is hitting rock bottom and fed up with her training, that is the promise that this status quo she is living in won't last. The fact that there is considered life on the star and that there is a planned launch is the promise of eventual contact. Akane, Tojin, and Painter's other former friends mark a promise of his someday being reunited with them. All of these things start their own progressions along the path toward payoffs. For example, the romance. The payoff was them ending up together. Or, if you like to look at it, The way the author seemingly broke his promise was also part of the payoff. This particular promise started clear back before we even meet either of them. It's the title of the book. But here is an aspect that I find interesting. All of the really good payoffs I've read from Sanderson have been that way. Good because I cared about them. I was invested in the promise and I wanted that payoff so badly. For the romance... That is even bigger bill to foot because he has to get us to like both characters as individuals and then want them to be together, having their happy ending and the fade to black. Getting someone to care about a couple, to get behind them as a relationship, is something artful and kind of foreign to me. I've heard a lot of tips on the subject and I checked it against Painter and relationship to see if perhaps Brandon applied something similar. I follow a YouTuber named Abby Emmons and she posts videos with writing advice that has helped me a good number of times. She writes differently than I like to so some things don't apply but I found one video interesting and it covered romance and how to add chemistry to a relationship specifically to help the audience get behind them as a couple. She suggested seven ways that could be added and I tried to see if Brandon used any of these same tactics in his book. Number one was forced proximity. Locked together with a magical bond and leashed together and forced to literally live each other's lives? I think this one counts. It literally is the premise for the book, not to mention the forced proximity in things like The Bathing Pool. Number two is shared secrets. This is vulnerability. It's endearing to both the other characters and to the audience when someone opens up about themselves and sharing things they wouldn't normally under the correct circumstances. Painter does this in a roundabout way, allowing his friends to spill his secrets. He wants Yumi to know what he did in the past, but he still allows it, ready and willing to accept the consequences of what he has done. Yumi's case is special to me. She doesn't seem to share any deep, dark secrets, at least that I can remember. But out of the two lives here, hers seems to be pierced more by Painter. When Yumi enters Painter's world, she experiences much of it, but it seems to be parts that either Nakaro hasn't experienced in a while, or experienced in a different way, mostly because she's living her own body. When Painter invades Yumi's world, however, he is forced to take over all of it. He must experience her world, her life, as she experiences it. Obviously, he views it differently than she does, but he still gets to see her life more than she gets to see into his. Number three is Nicknames. Abby Emmons states that this is one of her favorites, but I don't see it anywhere in Yumi and Painter's story, and I must say I agree with that. Myself, I'm not a huge fan of this when it comes in stories, though I have seen it done well in some where the nickname is not one you might normally assume to add chemistry such as when the nickname is mean or based on their weaknesses. I can't think of any examples off the top of my head, but that's the only time I haven't disliked them. Number four, inside jokes or shared experiences. Inside jokes or shared experiences is really one that I agree with. I tend to respond better to the latter shared experiences because these feel like the glue that sticks the two together. For example, not a love story, but... Facing down the troll in the girls' bathroom was the shared experiences that glued Harry, Ron, and Hermione together, despite differences. And it felt real. Abby recommends shared experiences that, if possible, only happen to the couple, and something that is just theirs. For Yumi and Painter, the link they share is one, and an even more powerful one, I believe, is their time in the cold spring. For both of them, it feels like they are forced into the situation, Neither enjoys it very much, but together they weather through it. There are others, but I believe the story specifically targets this shared experience as the one that binds them together emotionally. Number five, heightened emotional perception. This is when the characters are very aware of how the other feels. Even when others don't understand or can't read them, the other character can. For Yumi and Painter, we can see this best in the carnival chapter their emotional perceptions skyrocket as they share very intimate feelings and moments without having to vocalize them. Number six is protectiveness. In the next scene alone after the carnival, Painter comes out with protective instincts putting his fragile spiritual self between night, between the stable nightmare and Yumi. This shows obvious physical protection, but an even better example in my opinion is when Yumi protects Painter's reputation and defends him to his former friends. Showing one character sticking up for the other is good, in my opinion. Number seven, constant reminders of each other. Living in each other's bodies kind of puts a hamper on this one, but I've seen in other Brandis Anderson books that he uses this technique quite often. One of the ones that I can remember the most is from Skyward, where Spencer can't help but remember or think about Jorgen, even when she doesn't want to. These were just seven of many tips that you could use to implement and introduce chemistry into a romantic relationship. These were all from Abby Emmons, but if I had to add one of my own, it would be acts of kindness. For me, when a couple goes through hard times together and one or the other is both very kind and reaches out and helps the other character... This is when I feel that they really connect. Well, there you have it, guys. It was a long one, but thanks for sticking it out. It really was a blast reading this book and preparing this podcast episode. It's been over a month now that I finished this book, and I still just love it. It's literally still my favorite book. And so I hope that you guys took the time to read it, and I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. But even if you don't, I hope that you were able to take something away from this podcast episode. Thank you very much. This has been Writer's Reason. Thanks for listening.